Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Reading the Bible. I'm Lindsay Kennedy. And I'm Randy McCracken. We are beginning a new series in this episode. I'm really excited about this. Randy and I have got some ideas for what we want to do with this series, and we're thinking that it's going to be really useful to our listeners. It's a series on kingship in the Old Testament, and we'll be running at least a couple of episodes on this topic But in this episode, we want to really just talk about the big picture of kingship throughout the Old Testament. And Randy, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you hope to accomplish with this series? Well, one of the things that um, uh, we hope to accomplish in this very first episode is to give everyone, as you mentioned, this big picture of the idea of kingship. And sometimes when we're thinking of kingship in the Bible, we may be thinking of Saul and David and Solomon, maybe some of those kings of Israel and Judah. And we certainly do want to talk about them. Uh, But our goal in this first episode is to go all the way back to the beginning and to uh, help everyone realize that this theme of kingship starts in Genesis chapter one. And uh, so it's not accidental when we get to uh, the kings of Israel and Judah uh, that, that kings all of a sudden start popping up in the biblical narrative. Uh, there, there is uh, a lot behind this idea of kingship, and uh, that's one of the things that we hope to accomplish in this first episode. And Lindsay, I know that um, you have recently written a study guide for uh, the congregation that you're attending, and so um, you've been able to do some research, particularly on the kings of Israel and Judah. And so in a future episode uh, or more, we hope to uh, focus on some of those uh, people. Great. So in in this particular episode, like you said, Randy, we're going to be looking at kingship as a theme uh, throughout the Old Testament. And like you said, it really begins in Genesis 1, which may be surprising to some of our listeners, but uh, that's why we're doing this episode. And I think there's a lot of good content here to be discussed. That's right. And before we even... Uh, jump into Genesis 1, I I think where we should begin is with the Lord himself and recognizing that the scripture uh, declares that the Lord is king. And there are, of course, uh, a multitude of passages that we could look at along these lines. Let me just read uh, the first couple of verses of Psalm 93. This is verses 1 and 2. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. And as we look at uh, this declaration in scripture of the Lord is king, one of the things that some people may not be familiar with is uh, the idea that the word temple in Hebrew is the same word that is used for a king's palace. And so there is an association between the temple of the Lord and a king's palace. We think, for instance, that in the um, Holy of Holies in the temple, we had the Ark of the Covenant, at least in the Old Testament period, it was in the Holy of Holies. And the Ark is said to be the footstool uh, for God's feet. It is the, the resting place for his feet as he sits on his throne. And so temples in ancient times uh, were seen to be the palaces of gods. And in Israel's case, uh, the temple that is later constructed by Solomon is seen to actually be 
the Lord's palace, and it is a representation that he is their king. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great insight, Randy. Um, Isaiah 66 verse 1 talks about this idea as well, doesn't it, where it says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. And so there's this idea that really God is sitting enthroned in heaven, but his his reign extends all the way to earth uh, with this interesting idea that the earth is his footstool. So it's like he's resting his feet on the earth. Um, his kingship extends over both heaven and earth, uh, but specifically with the ark being uh, like his the, the locus or the, the place where his feet actually rest is the ark itself. And so there's this idea that his reign uh, begins there and it's centered there around the ark. Yeah, that's right. And as we move into Genesis 1, um, what God does as the king and creator of the universe is he bestows that ability to rule over um, his creation on human beings. And so in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, uh, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue yeah. it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, Lindsay, one of the popular questions uh, that people often encounter as they're studying Genesis chapter 1, and particularly these verses 26 through 28, what does it mean that uh, human beings were made mm -hmm. in the image of God? Right. And uh, although scholars uh, debate some uh, various possibilities, one that I think we can be quite sure of, because it's mentioned here within the text itself, is that being made in the image of God uh, brings to mind the idea of rulership or dominion, and hence the idea of kingship. Uh, and so in these very verses, um, God tells um, uh, the human beings that he's going to have the, uh, allow them to have dominion uh, over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and so on. Uh, and then down in verse 28, he says that they are to fill the earth and subdue it. And again, he says, have dominion over. And so these are kingship terms. And God is bestowing uh, his powers of, of kingship and rule on uh, the first couple here. And, and giving us the privilege then uh, of being able to rule over his creation. Now, we have further evidence for this, Lindsay. Why don't you share um, some of the evidence from history that we have where we have ancient kings actually being uh, speaking about being uh, created in the image of their God. Yeah, yeah. So this is really insightful. I think this brings a lot of clarity to this idea of the image of God is that we have these other... Um, inscriptions from history of kings and the idea of image, the image of God being attached to them as well. So this uh, quote from Ramses II says, you have assigned me, speaking to the gods, you have assigned me to your kingdom, you have fashioned me in your likeness and your image. 
the same ideas that we find in Genesis, being created in the image and likeness of God. And he says, which you have assigned to me and have created. So here he attaches this idea of likeness and image to him being the king, and it's particularly his reign reflecting the reign of his deity. Uh, there's mm-hmm. also a quote from Esarhaddon, who's the king of Assyria. Um, it says, the king, the lord of the world, is the very image of the sun god. He should keep in the dark for only half a day. Often in the ancient world, and even in the modern world, there's this idea that the king would create a statue or an image of himself, and he'd place it throughout his kingdom, and that would that statue would represent the fact that this king rules over this land. Uh, especially you would need this as as the king uh, the kingdom advances and extends further over over various terrain you'd want to have your image set up all over the place just to remind people hey i'm the king i'm the ruler and what's interesting is that this was an idea in the ancient near east that we also find in the bible that the king was actually the image or the statue of the god and so what's really interesting is that we find that adam and eve and mankind, not just the kings of Israel, but mankind in the Bible was created as God's image. So there's a way that we reflect God's rule over the earth. So we're like little statues or little images of God representing his rule. Yeah, and that's really an incredible teaching that we find here in the first chapter of Genesis. What an amazing privilege God bestowed on his creation to allow them Uh, basically to sort of rule um, under his care or in his place. And if uh, our listeners are interested in another passage along this line, Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 through 6 is a commentary uh, on Genesis 1. And there, if you read those verses, it it talks again about uh, mankind being bestowed with this gift of, of rulership and dominion. So this is a pretty clear biblical teaching. And right from the start then, that should uh, uh, really, in in one sense, humble us, and in another sense, make us go, wow, God has made us kings. And uh, that's not something we often think about. We think of royalty being perhaps the Queen of England or someone else. We don't think of ourselves in terms of royalty, but we are in fact, in God's eyes, royalty. So Adam, already in Genesis 3, is seen to be abdicating the throne, so to speak, because he gives power over to the serpent by listening to the serpent's request. And one of the ideas that is contained in these early chapters with the idea of kingship is also the idea of priesthood. And uh, we don't have time in this particular episode to explore both kingship and priesthood, but Uh, We'll bring it up a few times in this episode. Uh, Chapters 1 and 2 very clearly paint the idea of uh, a sanctuary. And there is much uh, language and imagery that reminds us of both the tabernacle and the temple. And so uh, Adam and Eve are sort of like priestly kings. And they lose the spiritual battle here in Genesis chapter 3. And they give a lot of their power over then. To the enemy. And then this becomes the story. Now, we know that mankind doesn't lose the image of God. That's going to be reiterated when we come to Genesis 9. Uh, but in another sense, the kingship has certainly been marred. Uh, we no longer perfectly represent the, the, uh, the kind of rulership uh, that expresses who God is. Um, sometimes we do, 
but sometimes it's tainted because of sin in our lives. There's another idea connected to this as well, which is that when Adam failed, they were cast out of the garden. And this is something that we're going to see probably in a couple of episodes time that the it's through the failure of Israel's kings that leads to the exile of the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. So even here, there's a foreshadowing of what will happen again later. Yes, that's absolutely right. Uh, and um, toward the end of the episode, we'll remind our, our listeners of that very idea. It's really powerful to see the parallel between what happens to Adam and Eve and then what happens to both Israel and Judah. Well, if we continue to follow this story through, and again, we're only trying to present sort of a skeletal outline, the big picture of kingship, we're going to come down to Noah. Uh, and of course, the, the flood happens during the time of Noah. Noah and his family are saved. And in Genesis chapter 9, following the period of the flood, there are a number of parallels, both in language and in theme, between Noah and Adam. And it's pretty clear that Noah is being pictured as the new Adam over a new creation, a creation that's been washed clean by the flood. Um, we get this idea of mankind being made in the image of God again in Genesis chapter 9, verses 3 through 7. And so in a sense, if, if Noah is the new Adam, then he also represents this idea of kingship as well. Uh, the tragedy is now the picture of kingship is uh, not as pretty as it was during uh, the original scene in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, there's now violence added in to this idea of kingship with Noah. Uh, we read about how uh, although we are still created in God's image, um, there's going to be fear that is uh, put upon uh, the beasts of creation. And we read how there's going to be violence uh, between human beings. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made him. So we hear a lot of the same themes from chapter one, but we notice that the kingship uh, due to sin is not the pretty picture that it was at the start. So moving the plot forward in Genesis, we see the theme of kingship reappear. Um, in a really particular place, we see it reappear with the story of Melchizedek and the king of Sodom, where we have this contrasting picture of kingship. If you remember the story, Lot is captured, and so Abram leads a military force, really, to free him and rescue him. And in response, he, he meets with the king of, of uh, Salem, Melchizedek, and then also the king of, of Sodom. And Randy, would you like to elaborate a little bit more on what we see here with these two kings? Sure. Yeah. First of all, notice that even Abram himself is, is being pictured as powerful as a king because he defeats uh, some very powerful kings, doesn't he, in order to rescue Lot and uh, the other people. So um, if we just back up real quick to Genesis 12, God has chosen Abram and he's told him that through him he's going to bless all the nations of the earth. And so we see that God chooses a certain people group, a certain nation uh, that he is going to use to to reestablish blessing in the earth. And so that theme of kingship then is going to naturally follow down through the line of Abram. So we see Abram acting as a king and uh, even later on, he's called a mighty prince or a prince of God. 
So we have this language that's used of, of Abram. But here, as you're pointing out, he comes into contact with these two kings. Melchizedek is, is certainly uh, a picture of the righteous king. And he's not only a king, but we're told that he's high priest, right? So we have that theme again of both high priest and king in the picture of Melchizedek, where the king of Sodom is clearly a wicked individual. Sodom is only a few chapters away in Genesis being totally destroyed. I'd like to read a quote here from a scholar by the name of T. Desmond Alexander. And in fact, we, we are getting a lot of our information from Alexander's book, which is entitled From Eden to the New Jerusalem. Uh, but as he comments on Melchizedek and the king of Sodom, listen to what he says. As this story reveals, corrupted human kingship is about taking possession of the earth and using power to control others. Divinely instituted kingship is quite different. It seeks to reestablish God's sovereignty on the earth in line with the divine mandate given to human beings when first created. And boy, he really says a mouthful there, because when we think in terms of kingship on this earth, let's face it, we do think in terms of people using power to control others. Uh, this is not the picture of God's kingship. Uh, and so we have contrasting pictures here. Melchizedek, the righteous priestly king who looks like God and rules like God versus the king of Sodom, who is all about power and control. And then as the story moves forward, uh, because the, these chapters of Genesis really focus on Abraham and God's promise to Abraham that through him he'll bless the world, we find also a promise that kings will come through the line of Abraham. We find that in several passages, Genesis 17, there's this promise that that he is the he'll be made the father of a multitude of nations and he'll make Abram into nations and kings shall come from you it says in Genesis 17 but then also further down really at the very end of Genesis there's this prophecy of a king that will come from the line of Judah so one of the descendants of Abraham that it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So here there's this prophecy, really, at the very end of Genesis, that a king is going to come through the line of Abraham, and specifically through the line of Judah. And as we continue to follow that theme on into the, the other books of the law, or the Torah, um, we're not going to spend a lot of time here on Exodus and Numbers in Leviticus, but let me just mention briefly that in Exodus, when the children of Israel are freed from Egyptian slavery, this theme of kingship appears when they're at Mount Sinai, a theme for the entire nation where uh, God says to the nation of Israel that you are a royal priesthood. And um, Alexander suggests that a good way to translate this phrase is actually you are a priestly king. And so we have this idea of the nation of Israel should be set up for the world to see what true kingship, what godly kingship and sovereignty is to look like. Um, obviously, they don't fare too well presenting a really positive picture of kingship to the world. Uh, and so 
the fulfillment of these prophecies that that a king uh, kings would come through Abram and and even through his wife Sarah and then later uh, through the the tribe of Judah the, the the idea of kingship then becomes focused on uh, an individual who will later become king uh, and then in Deuteronomy Lindsay why don't you talk to us about this passage in Deuteronomy 17 where uh, Moses talks about the fact that the day is going to come and Israel is going to want a king, uh, but there are certain qualifications that God expects the king to have. So this is a very important passage, and we're, I think we're going to be returning to it several times in this series because it it really sets forth God's expectation for a king for when Israel actually has a king. And so this is the really the job description, or this is the uh, list of of expectations and criteria that God has. So in contrast to human expectations of a king, this is what God wants for his people. And in Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, it really lays this out quite clearly. And there's a few things that God expects. One is that the king has to be from the nation of Israel. So it has to be one of the, um, from the family of Abraham. And so beyond that though, there's three negative expectations, things that the king must not do. And it says in verse 16 that he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. And that's, of course, that was a really prominent place from where horses would be traded. And so there's two things going on there is that, first of all, uh, this idea of military strength relying upon the power of horses, which would very much be like a modern equivalent of a tank or something along those lines, this relying on military power. But then also along with that comes this idea, and to do so would be to go back to Egypt. Uh, but then the second thing is to not to acquire many wives, lest his heart be turned away. And while that is, is itself quite clear, uh, along with that was this idea that a king in the ancient world would often marry many wives in order to secure military alliances or political alliances. So again, there's this reliance upon human wisdom. It might seem wise by human standards to marry many wives if you're a king because it secures relationships with all these other nations. But this is not what God wanted his king to do. And then thirdly, it says he must not acquire for himself excessive silver and gold, multiplying silver and gold. So again, it's not here talking about uh, that the king should not have any kind of wealth or that the nation should not be pursuing prosperity, but it's talking about multiplying it. It's talking about this focus on uh, financial stability. And so it's interesting. You've got these three ideas, military, political, and financial wisdom or financial stability. And each one of these things, God says, actually, I don't want you to focus on this or to rely upon this. And then the positive requirement of the king comes in the following verses, which is that the king actually, there's this one expectation that God has for the king is that he would write for himself in a book, a copy of this law, which is approved by Levitical priests. So basically, he's to have his own copy of the Torah, the Old Testament, or at least the, the first five books of the Old Testament, that he would treasure um, God's law for himself. And it says that he'll read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and the statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, that he may continue long in his kingdom and his children in Israel. So basically God is saying, reject worldly and human standards of kingship and 
the one thing that God requires of the king is that he internalizes and, and embodies really God's ideal for mankind, which we find in the Torah. And so that really brings us back to Genesis 1 as well, because you have this expectation that the king would be like the what God wanted from Adam and Eve, that he, they, he would be this person who rules, reflects God's character to the people around him, and that he would just treasure God's commands above all. So he would be a king that submitted to the Lord's authority and not his own autonomous wisdom and sovereignty. That's right. And so uh, this is a surprising picture of kingship, really, and it's actually very different from worldly kingship, isn't it, Lindsay? The, the king is actually to be a spiritual leader. He, as you have mentioned, he is to represent uh, God in the way God would rule the world. Uh, and therefore, he should be obedient to the word of God or to the law of God. And the king is not simply engaged in fighting physical enemies. He is engaged in a spiritual battle and fighting a spiritual enemy, just as Adam and Eve did battle with the serpent and unfortunately lost that fight. Uh, the king is to be prepared by meditating on the Torah so that he is uh, able to lead Israel uh, not only against physical enemies, but spiritual enemies. Now, um, of course, Moses and Joshua are never described as kings uh, in the Old Testament, but they are the leaders uh, of the nation of Israel. And in one sense, they, uh, they certainly um, act like kings uh, in that they are leading the people. Uh, both spiritually and leading them into physical battles. And one of the passages that I've always found fascinating is in Joshua chapter run, 1, right as the uh, people are uh, entering into the promised land and uh, being given the uh, promise by God that they will inherit the land, um, God comes to Joshua and he comes to him with advice. And it's not a battle plan, at least not in the physical sense that we would think of a battle plan. But this is God's word to Joshua. Joshua 1, beginning with verse 7, Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. But you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So God says, Joshua, you want to conquer this land? Meditate on my word and follow it. Wow. I mean, when you hear that, uh, you just got to go, that's really an incredibly different point of view. And we're back to this whole idea again that that the king is also a priest. Uh, and so um, there's a spiritual as well as a physical battle going on here. And the most important aspect of the battle is the spiritual battle. And so first and foremost, that leader or that king needs to represent God and needs to obey the word of God. And this is going to be very important when we start looking at the, the kings of Israel and Judah. It's funny because we're 
well into this episode and we haven't even begun to talk about the official kingship of Israel. And that's why, of course, we have the, the remainder of this series. But we're going to briefly discuss the the kings of Israel now. I think that's a good play, place for us to turn to looking at the the kings over Israel. There's really a few stages to this few elements. And there's the united monarchy where Israel is is one nation under one king. And we find that in the reign of Saul, being Israel's first king. And then we also see that continued in David and Solomon. And in our next episode, we'll be discussing these kings in more depth. Yeah, that's right. And so we, w- we won't spend a lot of time here. We're just going to sort of provide a skeletal outline. But let me just say very briefly, as we look at the United Monarchy and Saul, David, and Solomon, um, there used to be um, a, a program where you could memorize the Bible by using certain uh, sign language. And uh, one of the things that was often said was in, in this uh, trying to remember the kings, Saul, no heart, David, whole heart, and Solomon, half heart. And all that has to do in reflecting upon their obedience or disobedience to God. And one of the things that uh, we will notice we go through this study is every king, uh, his, his reign is evaluated based upon whether he followed the Lord and kept the word of the Lord or whether he didn't. And so this, again, this goes all the way back to the garden uh, and it goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 17. The criteria is not the criteria that uh, people in this world might have in evaluating the rule of a king or a queen, but the criteria is a spiritual criteria because the most important battle that's being fought is a spiritual one. Mm -hmm. Right, and so unfortunately the king's of the United Kingdom, this uh, United Kingdom does not last very long. It's really only up until Solomon. So you really only have three reigns here. And then it's in Solomon's decline, and then particularly through his son, Rehoboam, that the kingdom actually becomes split. And for the remainder of the Book of Kings, in which this takes place, uh, we have two kingdoms, actually. And this can sometimes confuse uh, readers of the Bible, because one of the kingdoms is called Israel, and one of the kingdoms is called Judah. But at this point, Israel no longer refers to the entirety of uh, the 12 tribes. It really refers to the northern tribes and the northern kingdom. And then Judah refers to the southern kingdom and the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. Yeah, that's right. And um, as you go through the book of Kings, um, you'll, you'll notice that Israel has 19 kings and all of them are evaluated as being wicked. And so all fail in this spiritual fight. And finally, uh, in 2 Kings chapter 17, uh, specifically verses 7 through 23, we read about the end of the kingdom of Israel as they are taken into exile by the Assyrians. And this again is attributed to their failure to worship only the Lord and to follow his word. And that happens 722 BC. Hmm. So just as Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, we find the northern kingdom is exiled. And like you said, Randy, they, there's no good king 
in the northern kingdom, unfortunately. It all really begins to go downhill from the very start, which we'll look at. But then the southern kingdom, where the, the temple is and where we have the Davidic kings, the sons of David, that's that's actually more of a mixed situation where you have, again, 19 kings, but it's a mixture of good kings and bad kings and sometimes good kings that end up being bad kings. It's really an unfortunate situation. And their story also, even though the exile is pushed back and it doesn't happen at the same time as the Northern Kingdom, it's it's delayed, but it, they still do end up being exiled to Babylon in 586 BC through their own spiritual decline. Yeah, that's right. Now, th that could sound like a tragic end to a story, but of course it's not the final end. Uh, even though none of the kings live up to the ideal of uh, what a, a true sovereign should look like, you know, someone who rules the way God rules, um, even David himself doesn't live up to that ideal because we know that he, he fails in a number of ways. Nonetheless, uh, hope remains in Israel that the Lord will rise, uh, raise up an ideal king, a son of David. And this comes from something that we'll deal with in a little more detail in the next episode, and that is the covenant that God makes with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where he has promised that a son will sit on his throne forever. And so this uh, in Israel becomes known as the messianic hope, uh, and the desire and the belief that a son of David will be raised up by the Lord to sit on the throne of Israel forever, and he will be the ideal Davidic king. And there are a number of passages uh, along these lines that uh, we could cite. Uh, Lindsay, you want to name just one or two for us? Oh, sure. Yeah, there's there's plenty, but we find this king appearing in some very significant Psalms, like Psalm 2, 72, 110. Uh, this king also shows up in the book of Isaiah and Ezekiel and basically almost all of the prophets really and I think it I think it wouldn't be spoiling the ending Randy if we were to say that this king is Jesus would you agree <laughs> <laughs> surprise yeah no, not really <laughs> but uh, you know tr tracing the big picture here of kingship we come to see why uh, Jesus is is pictured as the ideal king it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 uh, and to our failure in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, and then the tracing of kingship all the way through the Old Testament. Jesus, who is uh, born of a virgin, uh, and he is perfectly divine and perfectly human, and he becomes the king and the priest who restores the proper role of both the kingship and the priesthood for all of us. And in that restoration, the glorious good news that we read about in the New Testament is that Jesus allows us to participate in his rule. Uh, the kingship that was conferred on Adam and Eve in the very beginning uh, is reconferred on us. We will reign and rule with Christ. And there are some glorious New Testament promises uh, along these lines. Well, that's a, that's a great way to end this episode, and we will be returning again in the next one where we discuss the second part of this series on the kings of Israel. For more episodes and links to resources for each episode, visit our page beyondreadingthebible.com. 
We hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as we enjoy making it. Any review that you want to leave on iTunes or Google Play or any share on social media would go a huge way towards getting the word out there. This podcast requires a chunk of time and research and writing, recording, editing, promotion. It even has some financial costs. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider joining our community at Patreon by going to patreon.com forward slash my digital seminary for the price of a cup of coffee you could make a big difference there's also some great rewards as well special thanks to one of our supporters evan baysmore for making this episode possible music is by heritage their music can be found at heritage.com and i need to mention that the a in heritage is a v randy mccracken can be found at bible study with randy.com and i can be found at mydigitalseminary.com <laughs>